0: I'm at Base Camp Brewery in Southeast Portland. When you walk in, it feels like a wildlife museum meets beer hall. There's images of all these kinds of birds behind the bar, like you would see in like a sanctuary <laughs> devoted to birds. But what's really striking is the list of beers on the chalkboard and the amount of freaking taps behind the servers here. You probably already know that Portland is famous for its craft beer scene. There are over 70 breweries in this city, and so they've had to get creative to compete. Okay, this looks very cool. What have you done to this sample? Like this small-flavored stout I'm about to try.
1: So with the s'more stouts, we use some uh, some chocolate malts, uh, some uh, roasted barley to give a little bit of like smokiness to it. Some biscuit malts to replicate the uh, like the graham cracker flavor. And we didn't quite know how to bring the marshmallow flavor in without like you know bringing marshmallows into the beer. So we just toasted it and put it on the the brim of the glass so you get all the aromatics of it.
0: What should I do first? Eat the marshmallow or drink the uh, beer?
1: I'd recommend drinking the beer first and then you can have the marshmallow, but whatever you want.
0: Okay, here I go. Very dark looking. It's not just craft beer that's big in Portland. Locally produced craft booze of all kinds are massive here. The city is packed with micro distilleries, urban wineries, and one of the fastest growing drinks is gin. Now, I love craft booze and checking out breweries and tasting bars, but it does sometimes feel like a bit of a boys club. In Portland, it doesn't have to be this way. What I'm noticing around me is that women are taking up a lot of space. And it's awesome. I'm Faustina Rigoli, and this is Portland, where women are making space for themselves in industries traditionally dominated by men. They're bringing new spins to everything, from craft spirits to cannabis, and I want to try all of it. Welcome to Portland Unpacked.
2: I don't come from the industry at all. It's just I love to drink (laughs) and I love farmers. Before she opened a distillery, Jill Keeler ran an
0: organic farm on the outskirts of Portland, one that's open to the public. It's called Zenga Farm. It's like a kid's summer camp where children learn about fresh food, where it's from, how it's grown. Jill has always believed that farms don't
2: just exist to feed us, but also to educate us. While I was there, I got to know my good friend, Corey Carmen. She's a rancher in eastern Oregon. She raises grass-fed beef. And anytime Corey comes to the city, we drink whiskey together. And on one of these fateful whiskey nights, we're drinking some Kentucky bourbon. And we were just asking, God, I don't know where this grain comes from or who is a farmer or any of the real story behind it. And a couple more whiskeys go by. And she's like, you know, I'll grow the grain for you if you make it. And that was the real beginning moment of the whole thing.
0: Jill has two passions, promoting Oregon grain, which she believes is unmatched, and highlighting women in industries where they've historically been unwelcome, like ranching and distilling. She realised a gin and whiskey distillery run by a team of women could achieve both. But there's a huge distance between having a drunken idea and making it a reality.
2: How many people have had a night of drinking like, oh, we're going to start making this. And, you know, I, I think about my daughter a lot in decisions like this. Like, I, I didn't want to tell her, like, oh, there's always this thing I really wanted to do. So, yeah, I just began a ton of research. I knew I wasn't the maker. I wasn't, uh, you know, I feel like men can kind of get away with that story of like, oh, we were screwing around in our basement and holy shit, came up with this great beer (laughs) and let's start selling it. Like, I knew women couldn't get away with that story. I had to have the pro. I began my search for my distiller, knowing there are only a handful of female distillers in the world. Uh, But one happened to be in Bend, Oregon. Molly has her master's in distilling from Scotland and... I heard at this mythical creature and just went out and threw her over my shoulder and brought her back to Portland. <laughs> I convinced Molly to come on board, even though at that point there was no distillery and <laughs> just a gal with an idea. Um, but she was really thrilled with the idea. Having been a really a young woman in distilling, there was a lot of people who would walk in the doors of the distillery she worked at and just look right past her. of Like, I, can I talk to the distiller? And she'd you know, be like, no, nope, I'm right here. With Molly on board, Jill was
0: one step closer to pulling off this idea. They decided to start with gin because it doesn't need years to age like whiskey. But they still didn't have a recipe.
2: Molly and I, very early on, were on a walk in Forest Park and that's where we were kind of like in this brainstorming phase of what is our, what, what's our gin going to be like.
0: Portland has over a dozen craft distilleries. There's even an area called Distillery Row, a bunch of distilling spaces offering tours and tastings for the public. So, yeah, craft gin is a competitive market to break into here, especially for a woman with no previous gin experience. In those early stages of brainstorming with Molly, Jill knew that she had to play to their strengths. And ultimately for her, that was her love of
2: farming. Well, I grew up in... uh a suburb of Dallas, Texas. But both of my parents grew up on farms in West Texas. My parents fought like hell to get off the farm, and so it was almost this like kind of rebellion. I think that I wanted to somehow get back to the farm. Jill's love of farming skipped a generation, and actually came from her grandma,
0: who she called Mimo.
2: Uh, I spent my summers in the garden with Mimo. We had a tiny little mildewy cabin that was right next door to Mimo's, and that's just where like all my best summer memories are from. We're just very, very close. You know, distinct memories of shelling peas and that the pea dropping in the metal bowl, that sound of that. And we'd catch catch fish in the lake and fry catfish. And it's, you know, just very visceral memories. Over these summers, Jill inherited Mimor's love for organic, fresh, locally sourced produce. So Molly and I really wanted to kind of pay homage to Meemaw Freeland and come up with a gin that had fresh ingredients in it. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life. Very good Christian woman. I think a part of her would be rolling in her grave and the other part would be like proud, but she would never show it. <laughs> Just very stoic, tough woman. So Molly and I are on this walk in Forest Park and we were talking about what we wanted the gin to evoke and knowing we wanted it to kind of have this freshness and, 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 you know, we had this idea of Mima's Garden Gin. The challenge with that is the fresh ingredients. In, a, in traditional heat distillation, you can't use fresh ingredients. She, in this real geeky kind of chemist tone, she had this whispered, hushed voice. And she's like, have you heard of the rotovap?" And I had no idea what she was talking about.
0: Molly explained she could combine vacuum distilling with heat distilling. If they pulled it off, they would likely be one of the only distilleries in the world to do it. It means they could bring out all those fresh ingredients
2: grown locally. Just up the road is a farm called Vibrant Valley Farm run by all women, uh, just eight miles from where we're sitting. And fresh cucumber, mint, rosemary, thyme um, all come from Vibrant Valley that we put in our vacuum still. Meanwhile, 14 other botanicals are done through traditional heat distillation. Of course, juniper, to be called gin, it has to have juniper in it. But ours is not um, a, like a London dry style, which is very juniper forward. It's a more contemporary style um, where juniper is just one of many botanicals. One thing that I think is really interesting is women have far more taste buds and olfactory cells. And since we've never been the makers, it's almost like there's this whole palette that doesn't exist in the world. Um that, you know, Molly can taste and smell things that men can't, and that's so exciting to me, and I think what is part of what makes our spirits super unique.
0: Fast forward two years. The flywheel is spinning at Freeland Spirits. They named it after the one and only Meemaw Freeland. The distillery is this palatial warehouse in Knob Hill, a trendy neighbourhood in northwest Portland. And importantly, the space is full of women, working the still to produce gin, bottling bourbon, mixing cocktails at the bar. But for Jill, it goes further than the team on the ground. The commitment has to be reflected in
2: the whole chain. And it is, from the farmers growing their ingredients to the investors. So we've got investors and the great majority are women and a lot of them have never invested in a company before. So we're also increasing, you know, women with capital and women in positions of power. And so every element of it from the makers to the owners and everything in between to the women who feel comfortable sitting at our bar by themselves because they can talk to women behind the bar and ask any question they want to and feel really safe. Um, So each one of those aspects is hugely important to us and why we built this.
1: So
2: good. Oh, but they're not married.
0: Obviously I'm excited by all of this. So I've come next door to the tasting bar. I love how the toilets have tampons.
1: Right? Yeah. It's oh great. yeah, we check those every night too. Yeah. You know? it's and sometimes you'll see like them all gone and you're like someone needed some backups. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I would love a cocktail, but um, do you have any recommendations for me?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we have a full bar. We can play with whatever. Um, All the cocktails on the menu are there for a reason, though. They're all going to be excellent. Uh, Do you prefer things that are more citrus-forward? Do you like egg white for that beautiful creaminess?
0: Obviously, I try a bunch of drinks. And what impresses me most is how much Freeland has captured the taste of Oregon. Here's Jill again.
2: I feel like with wine, you think of the place. You think of the winery. You think of the vines. And I was like, what if, what if we can transfer that to spirits? What if we can think of a bottle of rye whiskey as the most value-added form of rye grain, as you could imagine? It's this beautiful representation of what was going on in that season, in that rye field, and you're, you can taste it.
0: Before I head home for the night, I look through the giant glass window behind the bar into the enormous distillery behind I can see the giant copper still sitting there like a big shiny contraption from Willy Wonka's chocolate factory or something. Old pipes and portholes and spinning dials. It's a beautiful machine.
2: I grew up reading uh, Lonesome Dove. It's a Western and my whole family loves it. And there's a horse who can't be tamed named the Hellbitch and Lonesome Dove. And so... When, when the still, I was on an 18-month wait list for our still, which came from Germany. And I finally got it installed and sent a photo to my brothers. I'm like, what should her name be? And you're immediately like, hell, bitch. <laughs> Molly was not on board because she was like, oh, I need to tame her. I was like, yes, you'll be like the one cowboy, cowboy call, who could ride the hell, bitch. So <laughs> She's tamed her and won't let me touch it. <laughs>
0: The next morning, I'm downstairs at the Jupiter Next, where I'm staying. I've come down for a quick coffee on my way out. On the menu, I spot CBD caramel latte. CBD, the cannabis extract. It's kind of weird seeing it written so casually on a menu. I asked the barista if it will get me high. He says it's mild and would only relax me. So I decide to give it a go. He goes about making the latte with that Portland-like precision. Weighing the cup, measuring out the caramel. He pours the hot oat milk over the proud Mary espresso. And you know what? I'm not joking when I say it might be the best fucking coffee I have ever had. on board with Portland's openness to experience. I totally get their desire to slow down. And yeah, I'm feeling kind of relaxed right now. But am I relaxed enough to deep dive into Portland's cannabis scene? Of course.
1: I guess the perfect image is like the stoner college bro, like in his mom's basement, playing video games all day, not doing anything. And for so long, all you would ever see in media or stories, or movies, or whatever, is this male figure of the stoner.
0: Anya Charbonneau is an advocate for changing up Weed's image. She's not what I expected. She's stylish and immaculate. She's wearing beautiful vintage drop earrings, and her long hair is pulled back into a slick high ponytail.
1: You know, like Seth Rogen, James Franco, they kind of had their big moments as being like weed famous, and there was no place for women in there. And you're like, when will we have our time?
0: (laughs) Until recently, the public image of cannabis didn't matter so much because it was illegal. But in 2015, all that changed in Oregon, and the newborn industry knew that if they wanted to tap into a mainstream market and be taken seriously, weed had to be normalised. Suddenly, there was the opportunity to rebrand cannabis culture locally.
1: A couple companies that started marketing towards women, or you know a couple stores, you could see that they were kind of design focused in a very in a kind of gender neutral but skewing a little feminine way. And there just needed to be more representation of like what creative and interesting women do and like how weed fits into their lives. All the people who are really curious about it, you know they're waiting for it to kind of st- look friendly and look interesting. So that's, like, I think the design shift sort of triggered the, like, cultural shift.
0: While all this was happening, Anya was the editor of Kinfolk, a Portland-based lifestyle magazine that's internationally known. If you haven't heard of it, it's highbrow and high concept. The minimalist, Scandi-chic vibe is the total opposite of stoner stereotypes. But Anya had her own project in mind.
1: The timing was right. It felt like the one niche subject left to explore.
0: (laughs) Two years ago, Anya launched Broccoli, a magazine created by and for women who love cannabis. Now, the first thing you notice when you open Broccoli is how hyper-designed it is. Beautifully assembled collages of photos and colours all overlapping to create fantasy worlds and escapist hallucinations on the page.
1: I think at first I just wanted to make something really fun and beautiful and weird. And then the more I talked to people about the idea, the more I was realizing that like people and women specifically The experiences that they had and what cannabis meant to them, it was so profound and like really transformative, powerful experiences. So suddenly I was like, okay, this can't just be a weird magazine. It has to be informative. It has to be accessible. It has to be educational. If we're trying to normalise cannabis, then we can't make it like, you know, oh, well, you just don't get it, right?
0: Crucially, the stories aren't just about getting high. They're an artistic expression of a new cannabis culture growing in Portland – one that centres the female experience.
1: And, like, all of the huge spectrum of things that go into that, from arts and culture to history. And we also love to push beyond just talking about cannabis because I think it's such a... It's an important part of a lot of people's lives, but it's not the whole picture. So we try to get a good mix to really, like, situate weed within a bigger picture of people's lives and interests. And I think for people to, like see that women can use cannabis in whatever way they're using it and still be driven and motivated and like, you know, career driven and creative. That's like still kind of blowing people's minds all over the place. Like broccoli describes itself as sophisticated,
0: artistic and informed. And so how closely does this mirror Portland's
1: cannabis culture more broadly? Well, I think Portland has always been a very creative city. I think we've long focused on craft markets, so we're very proud of the things that we can make and grow. For for cannabis to be sort of state-by-state state legal, it almost forced this boundary around Portland's talent to, like, develop ideas and then let them flourish here locally. So, I mean, I could not have lived in a better place to start something like this. Like, I love bringing people here for a little weed tourism to show them, like, not only how beautiful the farms are if they get a chance to visit but also like how easy and chill it is to go into a dispensary and like experimenting with all these different products and of course it's a beautiful easy city to get around in too so like you can take all those things that you just got at the shop and go and like wander in a beautiful park and sort of have a nice time so portland's got this like perfect little recipe for what i would consider to be the ideal weed experience
0: I'm pretty keen to check out a dispensary, which is what they call cannabis shops here. There's 160 all over the city. 160. Nearly double the number of liquor stores. I've asked Anya to be my guide.
1: I think the fun thing is that now there's like a public freedom to express yourself with cannabis, you see all different styles popping up. There's a lot of options, we have a lot of dispensaries. So if you want like a super, super super-duper casual low-key experience, there's a lot of dispensaries you can go to for that. If you want to have like a polished, more high-end feeling, there's a store for that too. You know, if you're looking for like a place to bring your mom, who might be kind of sketched out by going into a dispensary, um, Sarah downtown and also in southeast Portland. It's really beautiful and polished and bright and clean with plants and like brass. Everything looks like it's displayed in this really thoughtful kind of high end without being um, inaccessible. Right. Like people are friendly.
0: I'm keen to try somewhere that's suited to newbies like me.
1: We're going to take a visit down to Pharma, which is one of Portland's most beloved dispensaries. Um, One of the reasons that it's my favorite is because it has a great reputation for having very educated staff. You know, when you're the person standing between like the consumer and the product, you have a lot like a big responsibility to help that person find the thing that's actually going to work for them. Because there's a lot of experimentation happening and a lot of people are new to it. So that's what we're going to check out. In the car on the
0: way to Pharma, Anya gives me the 101 on buying weed in Portland. First of all, it's not a big deal. I'll need my passport for ID because I'm a tourist, but after that, it's like going to any other boutique. Pharma sells everything from straight marijuana buds for chopping and smoking to pre-rolled joints, yummy edibles and high concentration oils. The important thing to know is that cannabis products are made of THC and CBD. Roughly speaking, THC brings you up, so makes you feel high, and CBD brings you down, as in, it relaxes you and relieves pain. I'm really
1: excited. So after a little rainy car ride, here we are at Pharma. Hello. Hello,
0: everyone.
1: Hi, Hi. Hey, nice
2: to meet you, Sean.
0: Hi, Sean. My first impressions are, it's kind of like a... Luxury pharmacy, except with hanging plants and dark timber panelling. Farmer was named one of the 10 most beautiful dispensaries in America. Can you believe that's a thing? It kind of feels like an apple store for weed. Sean takes me to a display cabinet full of dried leafy buds, all neatly labelled.
2: So many ridiculous names and cute names that the growers usually pick. Um, There's another one here called Dragon Snacks, and that one's really nice. It's more like a two to one ratio, two parts CBD, one part THC, and that's going to be like really gentle.
0: So I'm seeing these giant buds here in these petri dishes, but if somebody were to order something, how would you sell it? Do you chop it up and put it in a bag? How does it work?
2: Pretty much like ordering from a deli. So I just would pull out this jar here. And then you could even, like, point to a piece that you want that looks attractive, and I would weigh it out, and then we would give you a price for it.
0: Can I smell some of these? Of course. Does strawberry shortcake smell like strawberry shortcake?
2: I'll let you be the judge. You can smell that one.
0: Oh, my gosh, it does smell like strawberries. (gasps) The shop is full of various edibles as well, like dark chocolate and marshmallows and
2: gummies. Edibles are kind of like completely different animal, using these compared to smoking, the effects of these can be much more dramatic and also they
1: last much longer too. Uh, The most popular tip is start low and go slow because you can't uneat it, (laughs) you can always add more and like you know you can always try again.
0: I decide to buy a couple of things and when I pay at the counter they bundle it all up in a child proof bag
1: okay
2: so when you push these two little tabs together at the back that will unlock that zipper okay right there
1: we're not a fancy city so like when you look at the things that we're into like coffee and food and booze and parks like the outdoors it's all pretty familiar and friendly so it was cool to get to see the like cannabis world translated in that way it needed to be accessible and it had to be something that like normal people walking down the street would be interested in because like otherwise how are people going to get on board
0: there's no other way to say it but this trip to pharma has been a very portland experience and much like my visit to freeland where women are writing the show stepping into a place like this a cannabis boutique well it kind of feels like i'm living in the future To wrap up this day of rad women doing rad things, I head over to a bar for a drink with the group Babes on Waves.
2: This is my first Babes and Waves uh, meeting, so I'm excited, excited to be here.
0: Back home, I'm a big surfer, so this is pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I come to all of these if I can make it out, yeah.
0: These women meet up regularly at the Up North Surf Club to plan surfing trips and build each other's confidence in the water. And yes, if you're scratching your head and thinking, I didn't think Portland was a surfing destination. Well, you're not wrong. The coast is about an hour away. But get this, Portland is the only place in America where you can hike, surf, skate and snowboard on the same day. Geographically speaking, I mean. I mean, in practice, that would be a pretty exhausting day. Like everyone I've met in Portland, the babes on waves have welcomed me with open arms. Surfer chicks are my people. I'm Faustina Rogoli. This is Portland Unpacked. On the next episode of Portland Unpacked...
1: On her head, she has, like, her dreads are, like, in the shape of the acronym. Like, it says dyke on her head, like, in dreadlocks.
0: So I feel like she's kind of as Portland as it gets. (laughs) We unpack the music capital of the West Coast. Ooh, LA would not be happy with that. (laughs)